Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. And welcome to episode 56 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a slightly quieter week for financial crime this week, which is always good news for someone who is at their busiest point in the academic year roundabout now. Still, there are stories on sanctions where we've seen a little more activity, stuff on money laundering and interesting themes coming out of coordinated cyber attacks, or it certainly seems to me that they're coordinated. So let's get on with it. As usual, I've linked the main stories flagged in the podcast, and you can find them in the description. Now, let's start, as we always do, with sanctions, where where there has been well, slightly more activity than I might otherwise have expected of sanctions news recently. We'll start with the UK, where the government has been really churning out news this week. First, two entries have been added to the financial sanctions ISIL and Al-Qaeda organisations list together with an update to the consolidated list. The additions are Malawi Raja and Sultan Aziz Azam, both of whom are subject to an asset freeze. Moving away from ISIL and associated organisations, Iran has been in the sights for of the UK government with the announcement of sanctions against regime officials for their human rights violations. In addition to the over 70 Iranians added since October 2022, four more additions were made this week. Mohammed Nazar Azimi, Ahmed Kadem, Mosin Karimi and Habib Shah Saviri. They've all been added to the list. And finally, on the UK government Announcements, the sanctions, the Russian sanctions guidance has been updated. Links to everything mentioned is in the podcast description. Before we leave the UK, the Guardian newspaper has two interesting sanctions reports this week. First, it reported on Thursday that a company, Grain Holding Limited, was registered in November with Volodymyr Saldo, an ally of Putin, listed as the owner. The report provides his entry on the sanctions list has been updated since Grain Holding that was the name of the company, was registered to draw in details from the company's incorporation documents suggesting the UK authorities were aware of its existence and regarded the paperwork as genuine. The listing is still on the UK company's register as active. The other story from The Guardian comes courtesy of the continuing conflict in Sudan, with a group of MPs calling for sanctions against those in the Sudanese military currently abusing human rights. You can find links to both stories in the podcast description together with a link to the Grain Holding Limited entry in Companies Register. To the United States now, where the US Department of the Treasury Office of Financial Assets Control, OFAC, has imposed sanctions on officials from the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Intelligence Organization, which is the Iranian Intelligence Agency. The reason for the imposition is that it is believed that the organization is responsible for the wrongful detention of U.S. nationals. In addition to those sanctions, OFAC has also issued further sanctions against Iranian officials for abusing the human rights of protesters. The final sanctions story from the U.S. is the announcement 
from the U.S. Department of Justice that British-American Tobacco has agreed to pay $629 million in settlement of sanctions breaches and bank fraud for a scheme which would have seen BAT sell tobacco products to North Korea in breach of U.S. sanctions through a Singaporean subsidiary. Links to all these stories can be found in the podcast description. In further sanctions-busting news from the U.S. this week, the U.S. Department of Justice has announced that Robert Wise, a New York attorney, has pleaded guilty to conspiring to commit money laundering to promote sanctions violations by Vladimir Voronchenko, an associate of sanctioned Russian oligarch Viktor Vexelberg. This is not the first time that those drawn into Vexelberg's world have been the subject of action by authorities, as we reported in episodes 42 and 45 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Link to the story can be found in the podcast description. We end this week's sanctions news roundup back in Iran, only this time we're going via the European Union, where the European Council has imposed sanctions on eight further individuals for human rights violations in the country. The press release provides, The Council is sanctioning Ariantel, an Iranian mobile service provider, which contributed to the telecommunications surveillance architecture mapped out by the Iranian government to quash dissent and critical voices in Iran. New listings also include lawmakers in the Iranian parliament, members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Cooperative Foundation, which is the body responsible for managing the IRGC's investments and, in that framework, responsible for funneling money into the regime's brutal repression. End quote. Now, there's a little bit on fraud this week, but not a tremendous amount, but I thought it was worth mentioning the one story that I did choose to run with this week because it's an old friend. That old friend, of course, is COVID-related fraud, where the US Department of Justice has announced that a Denver woman has pleaded guilty to over $3 million worth of COVID fraud. The fraud involved false statements in COVID loan applications. The woman will be sentenced in August, and the link to the announcement is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for fraud. Now to bribery and anti-corruption. The bribery and corruption stories this week come courtesy of the United States, where the DOJ, which frankly is just about the busiest, consistently busiest agency for financial crime, has issued two stories relating to bribery founded in public life. First, it announced sentencing in the case of former employees of a Californian state agency called Caltrans, where they sought to, quote, thwart the competitive bidding process for Caltrans contracts, to ensure that companies controlled by the co-conspirators submitted the winning bid and would be awarded the contract. Chun Fu Yong, the former Caltrans contract manager, was sentenced to just over four years of imprisonment and ordered to pay almost a million dollars in restitution, while William D. Opp, the former contractor, was sentenced to just short of four years and ordered to pay restitution of just short of $800,000. A third conspirator was sentenced in April this year. The second story from the DOJ is the sentencing of Jeremy Hutchinson of Little Rock, Arkansas, who is a former state senator, for, quotes accepting multiple bribes in connection with a multi-district investigation spanning the eastern and western, western districts of Arkansas and the western district of Missouri. 
Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. Now, there's been a decent wedge of stories on money laundering this week, and we'll start with the United States, where the Department of Justice has announced charges against a further individual in an international money laundering conspiracy, and that in a separate story, a North Korean banker at the North Korean Foreign Trade Bank has been charged in a cryptocurrency laundering conspiracy. Links to the stories can be found in the podcast description. In the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority has this week announced a series of measures aimed at reducing the risk of the post office being used to launder the proceeds of crime. The measures aimed at tackling the problem are, this is a direct quote from the press release, first, a move towards card-based transactions and away from paying in slips where possible to allow enhanced monitoring. Secondly, upskilling staff to spot patterns of suspicious activity. Thirdly, enhancing monitoring capabilities in banks which allow them to identify suspicious activity. Fourthly, reducing cash deposit limits at the post office subject to customer arrangements to below the existing limit of £20,000 per transaction. Banks should take a data-led approach and consider whether a tailored offer is appropriate. Fifthly, reducing the time taken to submit suspicious activity reports to the National Crime Agency, enabling them to take timely action. And sixthly and finally, improving intelligence sharing so that information is passed on to other firms, law enforcement and the Financial Conduct Authority on a regular basis. The Financial Conduct Authority has also this week released a speech which was delivered by Sarah Pritchard, who is the Executive Director of Markets and Executive Director of International, in which he sets out the regulator's approach to digital assets. Specifically on the topic of money laundering, Pritchard said, At the Financial Conduct Authority, our current remit over crypto is limited to making sure that crypto firms that operate here comply with anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism legislation. Only when the government legislates will we have more powers to regulate crypto. The UK's money laundering regulations require UK-based crypto asset exchanges and custodians to apply for registration with us, but this does not bite on overseas firms who may target UK-based customers. Of the applications we've determined, nearly three quarters, that is 195, were either refused or withdrew their application. Yet we've supported firms to meet the right standards and have registered 41 crypto firms of all sizes, showing these standards are achievable. Links to both stories from the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK can be found in the podcast description. The final stories on money laundering this week come from, again, the United Kingdom, but this time the National Crime Agency which has updated its Suspicious Activity Reports information provision following the introduction of its new SARS portal. The website has been updated and two videos have been published to YouTube explaining it all. Not many views at the moment. I had a look this morning. So why not bump up the views this weekend and take some time out to destroy your YouTube algorithm by looking at videos from the National Crime Agency? The other story from the National Crime Agency is news of the conviction of cash couriers who operated as part of a network which couriered over £100 million from the UK to Dubai in 83 separate trips between November 2019 and October 
2020. Now, bearing in mind that much of that period covered a global pandemic and associated lockdowns, that is some going. The sheer scale of the laundering, as well as the stories about the updated SARS portal and links to the YouTube videos, can all be found in the podcast description. Now, that's pretty much it. Other than cyber attack news, which is where we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. It's not that there's an awful lot on cyber attack news this week, but what there is follows some other stories, and I think they're starting to develop into trends. But anyway, we start with news of a cyber attack on the US Navy contractor Fincantiera Marine Group. This is the latest in a series of attacks against companies which subcontract to national militaries. I suppose a subcontractor is a slightly easier target than military, especially since the latter could take a more dramatic response if it wanted to do so. Sticking with the US, where the American Bar Association has announced a cyber attack affecting its 1.5 million members whose logins may have been compromised. Sticking in North America, only this time a more prosaic story from Canada, where the Yellow Pages has confirmed a data leak resulting from a cyber attack by the Black Buster hacking group. Turns out it was a ransomware attack, which was an issue undisclosed earlier in the news of the attack. Now to an interesting sequence of stories affecting Israel, but first a little context. In episode 54 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we reported on a cyber attack affecting irrigation systems in the Jordan Valley. The attack was over Passover, so defences may have been more susceptible to attack during the holiday period. Well, this was the latest in a steady trickle of news, and there's no pun intended there, relating to Israel. Well, this week, that trickle becomes a bit more of a deluge, with a range of attacks noted against Israeli companies and infrastructure. First, Mossad, the Israeli security service, identified that several Israeli companies had been attacked by a Sudanese hacker group and certain public agencies has also had also been attacked, including itself. They were taken offline following the cyber attacks, which is unsurprising. These incidents follow a cyber attack on Ben-Gurion Airport by Anonymous Sudan and also on the Israeli Electric Company. Now, these attacks on civilian in infrastructure, and I suppose I do include airports within that definition of the civilian in infrastructure, have increased in frequency in recent months, and not just in Israel. If I were to be put in charge of compliance at any Israeli agency or corporation, then the first thing I would do in light of all this would be to step up my cyber security defences, since there seems to be a degree of momentum building in these cyber attack stories behind attacks on companies either in Israel or associated with it, and not just on more mundane things like taking down a website, but on infrastructure affecting things like irrigation and, as we saw in episode 54, sewage. Now, I'll end this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with a direction to listen to another podcast. I've reported in this podcast about the threat of cyber insurance being removed from the suite of insurance products after comments in January this year, which I reported from the CEO of Zurich Insurance. The risk may simply be too high for cover to be offered for the threat of cyber attack. Well, do yourselves a favour this week and listen to the latest episode of the Insuring Cyber 
podcast where two cybersecurity experts are asked to reflect on the cyber risk landscape. The link to that can be found in the podcast description. Well, that's it for this week's beautifully short episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me next week, all being well indeed, with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a truly outstanding week, everyone.